I'm Christina Gerakides, and we're committed to making the seemingly impossible possible. We stand at the intersection of the values of humanity with the value of technology. Inspire for Impact, the podcast, is a place where we have conversations with inspirational entrepreneurs, community leaders, and representatives of organisations who are boldly creating a future by design. The good, the bad, the warts, and the inspiration. We're leading the way to be the change we want to see in the world. Conversations that bring to light the magic that is happening on a daily basis all over the globe. Welcome to another episode of Inspired for Impact, where we talk to people having great impact on the world through their jobs, through their innovations, through their entrepreneurial visions. Today, we have the amazing privilege of speaking with the wonderful Dr. Wolfgang Fengler, who is founder and CEO of World Data Lab. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Christina. And we have had several conversations before, so this is like the next iteration of that. Uh, You have had amazing success uh, using data with worldpoverty.io. It has followed on from worldpopulation.io. The question I would love to ask you is, if we go high level, where did the inspiration for collecting data, because let's face it, Lots of people are collecting data right now. Data is the new gold, as everybody, uh, some people say. Um, but lots of people collect data. There are not many of those people that are using using it effectively. Uh, and if I can say that that every aspect of your um, organisation uses data for good, so high level, where did the vision, how did it all start, um, where did the inspiration come from? No, thanks so much, Christina, because that's the core of the question. There are a lot of data experts and academics and a lot of us we've written but data needs to be fun too and it's only fun if actually lots of people use it and the non-experts use it and that's the 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 bridge we need to build my co-founder is homi karas he developed the sdgs the sustainable development goals and as you know the sdgs have that element of a data revolution in there and homi and i are are, are, he's been my boss in the world bank and i've been with for the world bank doing lots of reports and a lot of data analysis but it never which somehow the scale that also you and Singularity and others are, you know, aspiring to. And so that was a, the simple idea says, you know, let's, there's a lot of reports on poverty. Let's build a poverty clock that actually counts the poor and models the poor in real time. And it looks much more about the future than about the past. And that basically was the, the core inspiration. And then once you have one machinery that works and that people, people appreciate, then you can build on that much more. That is, a, it's an amazing concept. And you have, as you say, the moving clock. And I I had a bit of a play around with it. I went back to 2016. Uh, Between 2016 and the present day, there is very roughly, because my math math is not my strong point, uh, roughly $20 million, $20 million, 20 million people left who are living in extreme poverty. So how how do you gather those numbers? How does it all come together? How does it feed into the clock? so that we have this amazing uh, count of how many people are living in poverty. And it's not just extreme poverty that you're measuring on there, because the the Atlas, World Atlas is is beautifully colour-coded. But how is it that all the data feeds in and the measurements happen and we can actually feel good about, you know, I mean, there's still so many people living in, in extreme poverty, but at least it's getting better, it's not getting worse. Well put, uh, Christina. And as you said before, there is a lot of data out there. The key is how do you make sense of it and how do you connect it that it creates the real result and the best credible estimate. 
And it's a bit like, you know, like a chef cook. So you go to the forest to collect your mushroom, but some mushroom is poisonous. So you need to separate the good from the bad, and then you need to cook it in a good way. And that's the same with data. So there's a lot of data out there, the World Bank and global statistical institutes, uh, World Data Lab is part of a consortium of statistical institutes, um, do a lot of good work. But then just to give you one example, when you, a lot of this poverty estimates are based on surveys. You ask actually people, how much do they consume? How much food do they have a, a fridge at home? Do they have shelter? Um, but then these numbers need to be adjusted because maybe the survey was done three years ago and the population has changed, the economy has changed. But there's estimates for population by the UN, by our partner here in Vienna called YASA. Um, there is economic forecasts by the IMF and, and others so you need to connect them because if you take India, for example, which moves a lot of the needle in terms of poverty reduction, um, things have changed over the last three years. They were first worse during COVID and then they got better. And all of this, you, you know conceptually, but there's lots of other data sources. And so in the end, while our front, is, front end is very easy to use, on the back end, there's a lot of stuff happening. So you combine a number of data sets and you always need to make sure, and that's my last point, that it adds up. So something that sounds very boring and technical is actually the secret, the so-called adding up constraint. So what does this mean? There's a certain number of Australians, we know how many of those, there's a certain number of old Australians, there's a certain number of old middle-class Australians, there's a certain number of old middle-class Australians in Melbourne, and always this number has to add up. And if that adding up happens, then the machinery is robust. So you also have um, the world emissions being counted down as well. How do you how do you move from so okay so we started with population, which is I, I encourage everybody to go on to the worldpopulation.io site, um, put your birth date in and find out how long you're you're destined to be on this planet for. Um, so it is fun, as you say, you know, you, you're utilizing data in some respects for fun, uh, and it's very promising. I guess the the worldpoverty.io for me wasn't as much fun as worldpopulation.io, but it was it was wonderful watching the change um, in the numbers with the world emissions and we're, we're at such a critical time so it's the world emissions clock that you've got how what effect is that having on organizations like the un like some of the bigger you know potentially the world economic forum places like that mm. how are they watching these figures that you're putting out the sites that, that you're developing how are they watching those to create potentially policy to create um, movements going forward the world emissions clock is the most recent, so we just launched it. So we hope, including through this uh, podcast, we can uh, reach broader audience. And the, the philosophy behind all these clocks that, that you mentioned is also to create a bit more what I call sanity, clarity, and nuance in the debate. Because as we know, the debate is very heated, and rightly so, because it's the fundamental challenge of our time. But it's not getting worse everywhere all the time, even on climate. There's 40 countries that are actually moving in the right direction some of them not fast enough. There are certain sectors that are really doing well in some countries. And so to give you one illustration, the average world person, uh, world citizen consumes or pollutes 7.5 tons a year. It's still hard to grasp, but it's much better than in general, lots of, lots of emissions and lots of uh, temperature change. Unfortunately, Australia is one of the worst. So I think in the G20, it's only Canada and uh, Saudi Arabia, which is worse than Australia. So you're around, 20 tons, so three times the world average. Uh, so that's very dis disheartening. Now, but let's look at a different way. If you take the richer economies, and I take the richer ones because they still need to, to do most, and because also countries want to be rich, 
and take the best countries in the five main sectors, you actually get a very different number. So if you combine South Korea's reforestation effort with a Dutch transport, with Swiss energy, with, uh, with Swedish buildings, and with some industry in Italy or, or UK, you get only three tons. So remember, we started with 20 tons in Australia, seven and a half tons world average. But this combination of rich countries get us to three tons. At three tons per capita, we have very different climate debate. So it is possible, and it's even possible without disruptive change. You just need to copy what's there with the others. And so those is one illustration. Obviously, you can nuance that, where you can say, even on climate, there's hope, uh, and you can have prosperity, or you can have consumption and a protection of the climate. You just need to look into the data and find you know, the best possible scenarios. I, th I think that's very encouraging because there's so many doomsdayers out there around, particularly around the climate, that says it doesn't matter. Even if we make small changes, it's not going to make a difference, etc. But when you actually look um, at the world, at the world emissions clock, and you can see that there are areas that have improved and that are doing better, and as you say, that we can adopt some of the habits, that is very much a hopeful scenario um, for those naysayers that believe that it's too late and you know we can't do anything about it and what difference am I going to make? Um, so I find that very encouraging. If we go back to the world poverty, um, which which was the the well, it's not the most recently released, but it's the mm. most recently well known release. Um, mm. What is it? What what is it about that that you hope to change behaviour? How do you use that information to change behaviours? to alleviate, like I looked right down the end of your of the measurement and, you know, if we get into the 500 millions, I think, um, if, if I'm reading all the numbers correctly, you know, we get down from 600 and, and I think it was 22 million down to in the 500 millions. How does measuring that and then reacting to that and then taking this information or this information being taken on by organisations, how does it then create change? Yeah. Um, look, Christina, I think one thing which is often underestimated just to have the right number or the best possible number helps in so many ways, you know, it, and often it helps to remove lots of what you could call nonsense discussions and just if we say, okay, if these are the right numbers, then already helps a lot. Even in poverty, the world is getting better, it's just getting better too slowly, and it's getting better in some countries and not getting better in other countries, and that itself, if we get even to that basis, we would already, I think, would reduce 70% of the noise out there. Um, now then, you know, then there's interesting subsets. Say, what about child poverty? Child poverty is still what I would call the biggest problem in poverty in the world, but it's getting better faster. Well, how come? Well, it's partly not because there's so many pro-child policies, but because pure demographic shift. But then also you need to, you know, appreciate because there will be just less children in the future or less children as a share of the total even in the poor countries so all of those things create some more clarity i think on a big level now then when you go into the numbers so as you say it's 500 million roughly by 2030 we will miss the sdg but it's still the best world we have ever lived in and in the end it comes down to a, and a small number of large countries so the poverty challenge is basically two big countries it's nigeria and democratic republic of congo now that itself, you know, could 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 may wonder the you know in terms of the, the the German, the European Development Corporation, the Australian Development Corporation, shouldn't we just focus a lot on those big countries? Again, how to do then engage? There is a separate challenge, but uh, but just to to 
you could do the quiz. Would people know that in the end, the poverty challenge in the world comes down to two big countries? Uh, that itself, I think, will will help a lot. Um, and then, um, then you can do a bit what we did with the emissions clock. There will be some, you know, there's a lot of other innovations. There's a, the, the, the question around urban and rural poverty um, that you can then also nuance more. So again, you can go always deeper with the data, but just to have the clarity about some of the big challenges, you know, the big countries that uh, create the challenge and the poverty challenge in the world. Um, as I just mentioned, and maybe as a final point, there's also some countries that will end poverty. So Ethiopia is among them that seem to have strong progress. We can do the same as we had with the emissions clock to say, what does Ethiopia do differently than the neighboring countries? Um, and then maybe some countries will, will end old age poverty, which again itself then will create new insights. So it's always my, obviously it sounds maybe a boring answer, but when you ask a data question, one answer is always, let's add more data, let's get to the next level of the onion. So talking about getting to the next level, congratulations, because now you've moved full time um, as CEO of World Data Lab, which is amazing for that organization. Um, I know that you co-founded it as well. So what's next? So what do you what will you now measure? You know, we, we often say a common term is what can't be measured, you know, can't be acted upon. We can't we can't do anything around it if, if we can't measure it. What's the next phase? For World Data Lab, what what do you hope to be measuring um, to continue using data for good to continue making a difference on the planet? Well, World Data Lab has two main areas of, of expertise and strength, and they also match a bit that that impact philosophy that we have and the private public sector connection. And that's again so very analogous to what so you and Singularity University and your team and your broader realm are doing. Um, one area is what you call the SDG tracking clock is ticking. Um, we are this soon, actually, next month, reaching halfway point of the SDGs. So there will be, I imagine, demand to have more, um, more understanding of if we are on track or not. So we're doing a big engagement on jobs in Africa with MasterCard Foundation. So that's one thing that uh, people can look forward to. And as you know, we have branded or developed some new concepts around internet poverty that you could also expand to energy and to even think of the what poverty means and, and access to opportunity in the 21st century. So those are areas we want to play. So the opportunities, inequality, um, and jobs in the 21st century. The other area where we have stronger that comes from the poverty research is really understanding how people and what people consume. Um, and the poor we know consume very little and that's mostly food uh, and some you know, degree of clothes or shelter. Um, but you know, us um, and the emerging middle class, especially in Asia, starts to consume a lot of the goods that we have been growing up with. And that's extremely valuable for companies. And the surprise that I found working on this is that for companies, it's not obvious how much people consume and what. So even simple questions like, is Philippines or Vietnam the bigger market in the future for a consumer good company, for a bank, um, may not be obvious to some. Or then if you add Colombia and uh, Kenya into the mix, um, then people get may even get lost. Uh, and these making sense of those trends and shifts across countries. Um, um, and again, with a focus on the future, um, I'm not sure if, if your viewers know, but we just reached another tipping point. Half the world is consumer class, so 4 billion, the first time in human history, we have 4 billion people on the world who do consume uh, in some form or the other, who don't have just subsistence uh, lifestyles. 
Uh, and that obviously is, is good news because we want people to consume because the alternative is not nice. Um, and that again, they, companies can use data better, which is again, data for good, because if they can target the consumers better, there's less waste. So those are, um, is the core private sector engine of World Data Lab to look at the consumer class. And actually we have an, a launch of a World Consumer Outlook also next week, Wednesday on the 31st of May. Fantastic. So we'll keep we'll keep uh, an eye out for that, and we'll help as much as we can um, supporting that on the thirty first of May as well. I'd like to go back to something that you said about the SDGs. So we're at, at halfway. Um, what do you see happening in twenty thirty? So with the you know we're, we're very close. Uh, some of the figures, as we know, um, will not be reached. However, having said that you know we always set targets that hopefully are beyond our reach so that we can we can get closer um to where we may have had that been set closer to us so what do you think will happen do you think that we will renew the targets and set a new a new date do you believe that we will refine the sdgs i know some of the organizations we work with for example will take a look at you know we want to end poverty let's take number one we want to end poverty we can't do that but then when you drill down into the subsets you find that there's things that you're already doing um, that can encourage further actions in order to to relieve the pain around poverty what do you think might might be the the grand vision of the sdgs beyond 2030 hmm. I think first of all, the SDGs have really, you know, achieved a lot, especially creating a joint narrative. Uh, you know, it, it was like an obscure concept a few years ago. Not everybody can relate to them, so that is a huge achievement. I imagine that you know, next the natural net natural next target would be 2050 because also that's the target uh, from the climate Paris Climate Agreement, and I imagine that the already climate is part of the SDGs as SDG 13, but that those two. Um, themes connect even closer. So that I think would be um, would be logical. And given that both first the MDGs and the SDGs have achieved some of that joint global positive narrative, that that will be maintained. Um, now, in terms of um, taking stock of where we would be in 2030, the um, I would say the MDGs have achieved a lot. Right, the first uh, the first 15 years of this this century were probably one of the most positive years in terms of global development, mostly driven by China and a bit of the rest of Asia. Now we're seeing some degree of positive momentum in Africa, but, but very uneven. And so the big question, I think, for the, I would say, the next 20 years will be, can Africa join the, the positive momentum that Asia had? And I think that the jury is out because some of Africa, unfortunately, is digressing and this whole theme of, of security, vulnerability, fragility, is just much much stronger now than I think it was five or ten years ago, but but overall, yeah, I think it'll be much more a, a nuanced summary. The world is definite will definitely be better in 2030 than it was in 2015. Um, but again, it's mostly an Asian story and some degree of elsewhere. Um, and then there's still this open question around climate, and I think that's the that's for me the fascinating question is why in the next five years will that narrative of we actually can turn the corner in climate. Will that emerge or is it still more that the doomsday sense that things are getting worse? And that for me is still the open question for the next few years. I think we need to send more people to the site so that they see that in pockets of the world, things are getting better. And that should give everybody a lot of hope, particularly, you know, I'm very much around that transference of information. So if I adopt something that someone else is doing that's, that's making an incremental difference, 
um, wouldn't, isn't that an amazing thing? We do some work with one million women, uh, and Natalie Isaac's whole aim is to make every single person in a household uh, create an action that reduces some kind of carbon emission or some kind of wastage. And if you know that's twenty five million people in Australia, if, if every person did that what a difference that would make. And then if that transferred um, around the world, how wonderful that would be as well. So I very much like the way that that your maps allow us to look at what is working um, as opposed to all the doomsday information and what's not working. Um, you had a, there's a sign up. If, so if people go to the, um, to the worldpoverty.io, you go to the site and it says that the numbers have been adjusted for, um, for the Ukraine. How, how, many adjustments because like there's there's outbreaks of war throughout the world we're very much you know western civilization is following what's going on in the ukraine but we don't know about a lot of the conflict for example that's happening as you mentioned before in africa how how have you noticed um that these world conflicts actually do affect things like i mean clearly the population age but particularly the world emissions um, the the population, um, you know, unfortunately, we have a lower population when when people are, are killing each other, which is is highly um, tragic. But also with the world poverty. So, have you noticed a big increase in that area in world poverty? I noticed that Russia has got less than three percent of people living in mm. extreme poverty. Um, so, how how have you noticed um, the general feel around the numbers uh, when there is war involved? Yeah, well, there's um, uh, there's a few dimensions, Christina, and what may surprise some viewers is the biggest year in terms of negative news in this century. There's only one big year in terms of pure po poverty or consumer class, and that's actually 2020. That was COVID, and then um, again, a lot is will be driven by Asia. So it's actually important for viewers, and I know Australia is closer to that. That even if you get some some really problematic and tragic news in the West or in various parts of the world a lot will still dominate what happens in Asia. And as long as China, India and Southeast Asia grow, then some of the big numbers uh, of poverty will, or the consumer class will still go in the right direction. Uh, to give you again, a very crude, just broad number, you know, typically um, there's 120 million people added into the consumer class. That has been the number of the last years uh, since 2000, except 20, 2020. This year will be a bit lower. That's because of um, of the war and because of some of the the challenges in them. So that means some people, some families, don't have the opportunity to move out of some vulnerable and more pre precarious situation into some more prosperous life. So that's you know it's 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 a handful. It's 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 like ten percent of the the people that that should have been in this stage but that could join later. Um, now what we um, I think sometimes also misunderstand is. Clearly, you know, there's a difference between tragedy and then extreme poverty. So you can be in a very tragic situation. You could be a refugee and really in a dramatic situation in, in like many are here where I am now in, in, in Austria or in Germany, but it's still a different life than living in rural poverty in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's, you can't say one is better or worse, but clearly that refugee in Germany or Austria has more opportunities to consume um, and is out of poverty compared to the extreme poor in the world. And that's, um, again, there shouldn't be any value judgment because it's very, you know, you can't get into a person's life. And I myself would know, I'd rather be a refugee or to live in a, in a poor village that is very precarious in the Congo. Um, both have their challenges and both families or, or persons, you know, make the most, I'm sure, of their circumstance. But 
the poverty measure is a very crude measure that actually was one of the biggest achievements, I would say, on the World Bank. Uh, 1990, it was $1, roughly, is now $2 a day. And that helps just to get the numbers broken down in a very proper way. Um, and so maybe our final point on obviously what was the much bigger impact on poverty of the war in Ukraine was not the refugees, even though many of them lost a lot, but they moved down, say, from a, a middle class life to a, a, a fragile life that's not extreme poor. Um, but the bigger issue was the increase of food prices and the effect on many of the countries then in, in Africa. And in the end, you saw some stagnation that you didn't see a dramatic de decline. The dramatic decline was COVID because that stopped economic activity. And that was, again, for the livelihoods in Africa, more extreme than uh, the impact of the war in Ukraine. And these are the things that come out when you do that high-level helicopter view of, of the data and mm. the numbers. Mm. Um, can I ask you, if you if you could wave a magic wand, uh, mm. but a, a data magic wand, um, how would you pull all this data together and wrap it up in a bundle that would then say to people, here's the information, here's how we can make the world a better place. What have you learnt through collecting all the data, putting it all together in, a, in, its, in its silos, but then in the convergence of the knowledge that you have, what would, what would that magic piece be um, with that high helicopter vision um, of some things that I, I'm sure that you think about? Yeah. No, I think the magic piece is still almost on the on the user experience of everybody that the playfulness and the the learning is even stronger and it comes you know our tools are very good but i think we can make them even better and bring them into schools and universities and everyday's life a bit like like um like you know, google and google maps and many of the things we use every day uh, has been um and i'm saying this not just because it i want to score it or quote educate people actually i want the opposite i want people to find things that nobody has found. Because when I've been playing with the data now for more than 10 years, uh, in when I started some of the work linked to World Data Lab, and uh, uh, and I, every day I still find new things and things I didn't know. And although I've lived in many countries across the world, and some of that curiosity has just been, wow, I didn't know this. So that's what I hope in terms of mindset, which you embrace as well, which is the, the a priori, our point should be, I do not know the answer. And let's find out. And it is not, I know the answer, and let me lecture you what what you should do. No, it's I do not know the answer in terms of how to get emissions down, but there is some avenues you can play with the data and then you find some interesting answers maybe nobody has found. And that itself, I would say the starting point. You can always get better data and you can break it down further and you can get more up-to-date data, but that, that can come naturally. But just finding those new exciting insights, you know, what, what is actually the best country in Asia that is already reducing emissions dramatically, maybe in sector A, B or C, that itself, you know, I don't know, but maybe some of the viewers can check it out and tell us, and then through that there will be new. So it's this iterative, you know, finding things out, curiosity with data that I think I, I want to emphasize most. I love that. Now, as you were talking, I was thinking it's that curiosity and the curiosity and that investigation that then extracts the narrative. So the data forms the basis, but but our curiosity and the way our brains think and and want to want to interpret and then. Um, create some kind of narrative out of what it is, and that mm. for me is what is what uh, allows us to, well, let's say, all ships rise. You know, eventually, hopefully, that that's the plan across many different fields, across medicine, across education, across world poverty, etc., across all the all the SDGs. It's that all ships rise. 
Um, Dr. Wolfgang Fingler, it has been an absolute honour, as always, to speak with you. Your work is a constant source of fascination to me. I'm not a numbers person, I'm a words person, but I love how you use the numbers and I love looking at the numbers. Like even I remember your numbers. So it is, it's, it, it, so to say it's a game, maybe not not so much a game game, but, but it, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I look forward to the next iteration and the iteration after that. Um, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Do you have one final word for our listeners? Well, thank you, Christina. Keep you, you up the great work. You know, you need the combination of data and words. So I think we are good matches. So thanks so much for having me, Christina. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this episode of Inspired for Impact, please share it with your colleagues and friends and stay tuned for our next episode. Until then, walk in love, walk in unconditional love, and let's see what we can do to create the legacy that we want to leave on the planet. 